everyone. I'm Lee. I'm Spencer. And this is the Lasso Lowdown, where we give you the lowdown on all things Ted Lasso. We are firmly in season two of Ted Lasso. We are on episode two now, titled Lavender. Spencer, before we get into all the housekeeping and recap all of the segments, I just want initial first thoughts. What did you think of the episode? Let's start with the title. We've discussed the titles in this show before, whether they seem at all relevant. I gotta ask you, this seemed like this was referencing a single off mention in the first third of the episode. Did it have any more relevance to that? No, but I have a theory, which I'll get to. Yeah, I think that the Nate storyline is actually going to end up being extremely important, which is why they named the episode Lavender. That's my that's my guess, and I will debut the theory as we as you get through the recap. We keep returning to Nate's storyline and Nate's. I I almost call it a personality shift this season, so I agree it's going to be relevant. I'm just curious to see how long they delay it out before we get some resolution to it. Yeah. But anyway, so let's scrap the title. What did you think of the episode? Just original thoughts. I liked it more than the first episode. I thought I thought it was a step up. I thought it felt more confident and felt more in the groove of Ted Lasso. It still had some extra silliness this season, which just seems like this is something they're going with. But I, I thought the characters felt a lot more natural interacting with each other, and I liked a lot of the plot development they went through with certain characters. So, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Okay. I liked it better, too. Um, I liked episode one, but I thought episode two was like... Classic Ted Lasso, like up there, really good. I felt like it, it, the episode went faster yes. than the first one. It felt faster. My wife and I, like I'm, I finished the, the episode and my wife turned to me and she's like, oh, that's Ted Lasso. Like it's, it's back, basically. She felt like it was back with episode two. And it's interesting, too, because it definitely felt faster. But these are still long episodes compared to season one. I mean, the, the first episode was like 38 minutes. This one was 33. Those are up to 10 minutes longer than, se- than season one episodes. Yeah, we're getting more lasso. I don't complain. I, I like that. But uh, do, do you? Is, are you mentioning that because you, you don't like the longer episodes? I, I thought the first episode dragged a bit. I had no complaints about this one. as it, it rushed by. Okay. All right. Well, with that, let's get into a little housekeeping. This is a Magnum Talks podcast here at the Lasso Lowdown. If you want to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can go to any of your favorite pod- podcast platforms, type in Mangum Talks, and all of our pods will come up. We have a general in- interest podcast called Mangum Talks. We have a digital book club um uh, called mangum reads that within that podcast within a podcast a little inception there podcast inception for you we have pottering around which is a chapter by chapter reread of harry potter and then we have a bunch of television review podcast and movie review podcast you can find all that by typing in mangum talks in your favorite podcast provider or going to mangumtalks.com there you go that's how you can check out all of our other stuff but the issue at hand here is ted lasso let's talk about our segments because here on the lasso lowdown we have segments galore Galore, I say. We start with Biscuits with the Boss, where Spencer brings a dessert to the podcast. I do Tea Time with Lee, where I try to convince my presumably American audience that tea is not quite as bad as Ted Lasso thinks it is. We do a recap with Spencer. My man Spencer writes the notes, does the recap every week. I thoroughly appreciate it. We award Trainwreck of the episode. Go through 10. 10 only. Not 9. Not 11. 10 only things in the Sports Center Top 10 that we enjoyed about the episode and wrap up with a fairly serious segment i like to call life lessons with ted so with that spencer i think we should get started with our segments what dessert did you bring for us today well opening up our comfort food to enjoy our comfort episode i have here a plate before me of Girardelli triple chocolate brownies i every now and then i'm not a man that wants to invest too much time into baking things sometimes box brownies are just the way to go and me and my three brownies are going to enjoy themselves over the course of this episode okay so you said Girardelli. I've always heard Girardelli. Tomato. No clue. It's a word I've literally never heard someone else say out loud. But the more important issue here is that I have a take on brownies. 
I feel very strongly about this. Oh, I'm waiting and it to is hear that, this. It is that the difference between your standard box brownie, and I always go Ghirardelli, by the way, so shout out to you. Very good call. Thank you. Ghirardelli, Ghirardelli triple chocolate for me all day. So between that and go to your favorite bakery in your whatever urban center that you're in and get a brownie, the difference between those two is smaller than any other baked good that you can prepare at home. I think that's very fair. And honestly, most bakery brownies, I don't like them more than the boxed brownies. Honestly, they do, they add so much to make them extra rich, they almost make me feel sick, or they do things to just mess around with the formula. If I'm getting a brownie, I want a brownie. And bakery does not seem to add much to the experience. And I get that the, you know, the mix is just the dry goods and you add the eggs and the milk or whatever, but it's just, you can make the same argument for cake and, and cookies, but the margin oh, yeah. is so different between like a bakery cookie or a bakery cake. So I am always a fan of doing the brownies at home. I think that's a good call. I actually think they've kind of, I don't know if they've invested a lot of time in this, but I think they've kind of made them idiot proof in a way they've not succeeded with cookies or cakes done at home. Everything's in the box, all the ingredients there, you put them in a tray, and they work out beautifully without any extra skill on my part. One egg, half a cup of oil, bang, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, box brownies, all day, Ghirardelli, I like the call. So, tea time with Lee, what I have brought this week. Last week I told, I went on this jag about local tea blends. Um, did, this yeah. idea that uh, you can go to places that you would maybe not expect to get tea. So, like a little corner store where they have like boutique items or a farmer's market or just any place that's selling your local goods like that, right? You can get tea blends. And that's exactly what I did yesterday. Our, our urban center here in North Carolina that I'm, I'm close to is Durham. There's a place called uh, the Bodega, which is like a bodega for the Bull City here in Durham. And it basically has about 90% local goods. And Ooh. I was walking through there yesterday and found a local tea company called the Raleigh Tea Company. Raleigh, North Carolina Tea Company. And this tea is a local blend called Paris 1920. It's a bergamot black tea with uh, Madagascar vanilla extract, orange peel, and lavender. That's right, Spencer! Lavender! Can you believe it? I did it! The effort you put into this, the time you commit to this, it continues to impress. Lavender! Last week it was Earl Grey. Goodbye, Earl. This week, lavender. I got lavender in my tea. That's right. Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a 1920 Paris 1920. If you can, um, if you want to order that, and I think you can get it uh, online from the Raleigh Tea Company. So I am going to pour that right now. The ASMR fans are very happy. Give it a try. Survey says. Yeah, that's really good. Um, nice. Last week I talked about that Earl Grey that I had as a sort of dessert tea. Mm-hmm. That it was really good, like with a cookie or something. This could be a tea time tea. It, it has a little sweetness to it. It's got lavender, obviously, an orange peel, and it's bergamot black tea. So you're gonna it's gonna taste a little bit like desserty, but this could definitely be like a tea time tea. I would say go with um, I'd say go with a little bit of milk and sugar with this one. Just lay off the hmm. limit on this guy because it already has the orange peel, milk and sugar. I think I think we have both excellent comfort foods to enjoy. I hope our listeners do too. Are we ready for the recap? No, we're not. I got a question for you about tea that I've never asked you. I've been completely thrown off by game. Please tell me yeah, what's going no, on. No, I just can't believe we've never covered this in Tea Time with Lee. Um, when you get hot tea, how do you take it generally? Like if I'm giving you a standard black tea, like do you go milk, sugar, lemon, any of those combinations? I very much vary. I'll, often I'm perfectly content with it just as is. If I'm adding anything to it, usually just a little bit of half and half or something is enough for, is, is enough for me. Okay. 
All right, there you go. I am all over the place. I mean, most of the time it's just a little bit of sugar, but um, if it's like earlier in the day, I typically will go a little lemon, try to wake myself up. Um, but I'm all over the map too. So there you go. That's a uh, little trivia for you. Only tea time with Lee on what your what your host's like. Spencer, are you ready to get into the recap? Assuming you are, yes. Yep, finally am. Let's do it. All right, well, your favorite reality show is back. I know you look Lust forward to this show. Lust conquers all. Every week, you're excited. You send me texts. I don't even know how you manage these kind of reveal moments they're going through because they're having one right now. D'Anthony, your, your favorite character I know, and Jamie, I've come to the vote. One of them is going to be voted off the show. The crowd is in silence. The cast is utterly tense. Everybody's ready for this, but Jamie is cocky as hell. He's perfectly content that he's going to stay on this show forever and that Anthony is doomed, making him all the more surprised when he is promptly, with very little buildup, voted off. The cast look away in embarrassment. Jamie's abjectly confused. No one knows what's happening. As we cut right away to Jamie now on a morning show. Actually, I believe it titled This Morning with Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield. Real show. It's an actual show in the UK. Uh, it is. This morning, yeah. As they're interviewing him about how he's doing now that he's been voted off the reality show. And several of his responses leave them in pretty much shocked silence. When they refer I'm not to just the, a loser. I'm the loser. That's the first one. Yeah, that's a great start. That's the most Jamie line of the episode. They ask him whether he's going to, you know, keep his promise to his fellow female contestant, to which he reveals that no, he was just playing the game, you know, find the fittest girl, have sex with her in a toilet, ask her to marry her, you know, strategy. Which okay, so utterly flabbergasted. A, a lot of the times um, the British folks calling the bathroom the toilet is interchangeable and it doesn't have any real severe implications. Mm-hmm. Here, it's it has big implications, the difference between the bathroom and the actual toilet and what Jamie is saying. Just a bit, <laughs> yes. Fair call. Uh, they also reveal that apparently to do this, which we had, I think we had questions about this before because it was a little bit odd that he's on you know a reality show while the season's going. Yeah. He actually quit Man City to do this reality show. Unbelievable. Just left. Terrible. Uh, with his explanation being, which we later find out is at least a little bit bullshit, that the second he heard that George Harrison died, he realized that he had to stop waiting for life to begin and live <laughs> life to its fullest. Which, just for those who are playing the home game, George Harrison died in 2001 due to cancer, which even the presenters called him on. It's like, he died 20 years ago. It's like, well, I just found out. Which feels like it's a callback to the thing that Ted said last season about his son never revealing to his son that the, the, the two of the Beatles are dead. Yeah, this it feels is. like a direct callback to that. They, I, as I said before, this show is nothing if not consistent with their jokes. I feel like it's like a yeah. carry from Homeland sort of like cork board of jokes if you ever start to map them out. <laughs> it's like, you know, episode two, nine, season two, episode two, bang, you got th- like three different like iterations of the same joke going. And it feels particularly relevant here, too, because I, th- it, I, believe, if I remember correctly, it was Ted's son they were talking about in season one, not talking about what happened to the Beatles. The fact that we're dealing with yeah. Jamie struggling for a father figure and Ted very much wanting to step in to kind of help Jamie with that, that yep. feels like an even more appropriate comparison. Yep. Uh, Jamie's apparently pretty flippant about the idea. So, hey, you know, I'll just go back to Man City. <laughs> to which the presenters are ready. They got to, I guess, interviewing either the uh, coach or the owner. Not entirely clear. So he's uh, Vinay Ahuja, Man City director for football. He is their Higgins. Gotcha. Who they ask him, you know, what do you ever say about Jamie? And he says, you know, I loved him on the show, but no, he's not coming back. 
Wish him well. Jamie's just left in utterly shocked silence as the host, trying to cover up that moment, uh, transitioned to a story on the now non-saddening low-fat custard that's out on the market, as they do on morning shows. This is my one of my favorite things that happens in television and radio, is this sort of like tease cut. Like, we should start doing this on our show and be like, like, just pause and then like, next, Spencer will tell you why watching Ted Lasso in the nude is preferable. Why did you have to go there, man? Why are you calling me out on this thing? <laughs> it's always like some sort of weird thing. I, I just love that. It always makes me laugh. <laughs> it, it, I haven't watched morning shows in years, but that immediately, when I used to watch, you know, uh, Good Morning America back in the day when I was growing up, that immediately brought back those memories of those kind of cuts. So yeah, good call to point that out. Jamie now just kind of sadly walks out of the studio while very sad piano music plays in the background. And he stopped. Yeah, but there's fans there. And Jamie, as we've seen before, is really good with the fan base. He immediately yeah, he puts is. on a polite face. He greets them kindly. Sign, he signs, signs autographs, takes selfies. He's always very clear and good about that. And really comes across as friendly and genuine, which I think in reality he is, despite whatever facade he puts on for the world. He comes up to his driver and kind of, again, kindly just tells him, no thanks, I think I'm going to go for a walk, thank you. And starts to walk off as one of our more delayed intros in a while now starts at the 315 mark 315 not a record again season uh season one episode eight five minutes and 30 seconds is a record but yeah 315 definitely puts it in the top quarter i, mean, I think like the last four or five it's all been under like two minutes or around two minutes this this, this felt longer much longer cold opening here our intro leaves us behind and we're back in the coach's office where apparently beard slept last <laughs> night <laughs> I'm telling you, there is another show to be had here of the timeline of Beard. Like, they, I, I, you remember old school where they used to do like DVDs of television shows and you get all these extras? Like, or, I wish there was like a Ted Lasso DVD and you got like two episodes of what Beard was doing during the season. What? I mean, even the certain shows that still, even they don't, don't do the DVD thing as much, they release like little web episodes that you just access on their platform or their website or whatever else and you find out little odd things the other characters have been doing. This seems perfect for that. Apparently, as we've been you know, bearing a little bit, uh, Beard got in a fight with Jane last night, and apparently in the middle of their fight, she threw his keys into the river. Jeez. So he slept there. And I like that Ted's acting, reacting to this as if, eh, another Tuesday. This is how they interact with each other. Uh, Jane is still the same chess woman that he was with in season one, though, right? Correct. Long-term relationship for Beard. Kudos to him. I know this is new for him. You two are like Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. Frank Sinatra, Mia Farrow, or Frank. You know, I'm starting to think old Blue Eyes was a bit mercurial. I love the realizations that Ted just has about life. It's like, you know, that thought, that, that thought's probably been going around in his head for years, but suddenly it all just crystallizes with a friend situation. <laughs> uh, Ted then oddly runs off upon finding that it's 920. We'll return to that later about why he's doing that. Nate, meanwhile, comes in in an abject huff. Very unhappy about the new lavender scent that is coming off the towels. Smells like a Parisian bathroom. Beard likes it. Beard seems okay with this. Nate, on the other hand, complete opposite. He storms. Hmm? A will, a word. I just like his phrase. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote Nate a lot because his phrasing really cracks me up. Like that. Can you? You said in an abject huff. Can you ask for someone in a more curt way than a word? It, it, it's like he took a lesson from like you know 50s middle management kind of guides as to how you interact with your employees keep it simple don't personal you're in charge and so he demands will's attention i love also 
after he summons him, which is essentially what he does, he yeah. closes the door behind him even though he knows he's following. So the guy has to keep knocking and then opening to follow him into the next room. What a dick. <laughs> Dickish power move. That's what Nate runs on. He confronts him on this new scent and Will reveals that apparently he switched the fabric softener because his girlfriend finds the lavender smell very calming. Beards is kind of nodding. The background's like, eh, eh, that works okay. Nate is pissed. Calls him out for, you do not switch these to that permission. You could be fucking with the player's headspace. This is not your authority. Will, very chastened, apologizes, backs away. Nate just shaking his head about the incompetence that he's having to deal with in his job. We're going to get a few scenes of Nate doing this over the course of the episode. This continuing the shift progression of Nate's uh, personality we've been seeing over the course of the season, and last episode in particular. Yeah. It's something, I don't know when they're going to wrap this up, as we said, but it feels like this is going to be a long-term thing. Yeah. Gilly and Roy are in their car out in the oh, parking lot. hold on. Lot. I got a couple of things, couple of things I want to talk about in that scene, and then I'll give you my theory on Nate. Please. Um, so Nate, uh, when, it, when, when Will leaves... Nate kind of gr- gruffly like says, well, you're just going to throw the players off. And Beard goes, after they shower? Good yeah. question. Nate doesn't like that. So he decides to punch back to Beard. Do you sleep here? Perchance to dream. Perchance to dream here. <laughs> Which uh, is actually, I'm not even going to save this to the Sports Center Top 10. That's actually a phrase from the most celebrated soliloquy of Hamlet. It um, is. And it's actually the same soliloquy that starts with to be or not to be. It's act three, scene one. Um, so I, here's the my rub. theory. Here's my theory on Nate. You ready for it? Please. I think that they are overdoing this like Nate is like super mean to the kit man to show that Nate, he, what he's going to do is this sort of like, all right, you're not, you're, you're not doing this right. I have to go back and do it. I think he's going to come out of retirement to be the kit man because he thinks Will can't do it properly. He's just going to have enough of Will shit. He's going to get rid of Will. He's going to become the kit man again, opening up a coach spot. Guess who I think is going to be the next coach? Roy? R- Roy, exactly. That's my guess. <laughs> that would be interesting right there. I'm not... To see Nate voluntarily demote himself just because he's so sick and tired of the job not being done the way he thinks it absolutely has to be done would be hilarious. Step back for the character, maybe, but that if it makes him happy, it makes him happy. Yeah, they may not do it, but but, but I think we're in agreement that they're... Do, get coming to something with this Nate what, thing because they keep focusing on his change of personality and his interaction with Will a lot. What's going to be really interesting come the next episode is how I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but I want to address it now. How he interacts with Jamie now that he's in a position of authority. Because Jamie mm-hmm. made his life an abject hell. He had minions even just constantly picking on him, bullying him at every opportunity. Now that he can't in any way interact with that and Nate has the power, do you think Nate's just going to forget and forgive that? I don't think so. So I'll be really curious to see Nate maintaining this current very hostile, not tolerating shit from players or staff kind of personality now applied to Jamie, his former tormentor. That's going to be fun next episode. That will be very interesting. Uh, Keely and Roy, they're in their car. She invites him into the stadium. He declines and says that his plans for the day would be to go to the girls' practice, well, go to the girls' game because it's the last game of their season. And also to cook Keely a nice cordon bleu dinner following the vice of Nigella Lawson, who is a TV cook and a food writer in England. Nigella she- says if you butterfly the chicken, it'll be more moist. Keely's not certain whether she's more turned on by the fact that he watches Nigella or just used the word moist in conversation, but clearly this is pretty awesome to her right now. 
She gets out of the car because Ted is now driving up. Well, she, they're still in the car when Ted drives up riding on the back of a lawnmower. Haven't seen him do that before. Uh, specifically, not even driving it. He's holding on to the groundsman as he's going around mowing the lawn. So a couple things on this scene. One is I'm, I love Keely. She's my, my favorite character on a personal level. My favorite character intellectually is Roy. Um, I'm progressively not understanding her. Um, she's like, what are you doing? Like, she's just bop, bop, bop. Like, her, her cadence is cute, but it's very hard to understand. But she does drop a line during this that I don't know why it made me laugh so much. But she just turns her head and sees Ted on the back of this lawnmower and goes, what is Ted doing? <laughs> I, 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 it's just this hilarious sort of like, what the hell is that? And I love Roy's response to that, too. Just saying, eh, probably homesick. Closest thing you can find to a Dodge Ram. I love, Roy. I love that in retirement, Roy's still taking shots at America. Shout out how, to Roy. How could he not? It's pride, my friend. I, I, it's, it's interesting, too. Keely, I agree, is getting a little bit more incomprehensible. I think it's in some ways that the actress is playing her voice a little bit higher. So there's yeah. certain lines that just sound squeaky when she says them. It just got, harkens back to, don't you fat Boba Fett, which, by mm-hmm. the way, has been, head, like, don't you fret Boba Fett has been in my head for two weeks. Just it's a wonderful line. <laughs> hey, she's great with impressions. We saw this season one. Uh, it's said Ted now gets off the lawnmower again. <laughs> Why? Right, Comes over to the car to, to wave at Roy. Roy just lays rubber getting out of there as fast as possible to avoid that conversation. Yep. And Ted claims to Keeley that he was riding the lawnmower because it's good for his sciatica. The vibrations really help out his butt. Sure. I have no response to that, nor does Keeley. Maybe. His timing, though, is interesting. He was running off to go somewhere at 920, and we now have four options for what that is. To ride the lawnmower, maybe. To greet Keeley, possible. To try to see Roy, probable maybe even. Or, our next arrival, to greet Dr. Sharon. Which of these do you think is more likely for why Ted just ran off because he found out it was 920? Well, I don't think he knows that Dr. Sharon's coming because when she comes, he tells Keely yep. like, well, what, what, why? I didn't know she was supposed to be here. Absolutely. Um, so I think, I honestly think he just wanted to be on the back of the lawnmower. Like, I think he was just having a good time being shotgun on a lawnmower. We've not seen it before, but it's Ted. I have no idea. Each of those first three is perfectly plausible. I absolutely agree that the last one, though the timing works out, doesn't make sense from what he then says next about being surprised. Like, hey, is she here to pick up her paycheck? Don't we have direct deposit? It's clear this surprised him. It's just an odd scene to see Ted doing this. I have the same reaction that Keely and Roy do of, is this just something Ted does now? That's why the line from Keely is so funny, because it's it's the type of thing that, like, when you have a weird friend that you really care about, is the tone you would say, what is Ted doing? Like, <laughs> uh, I will say, all right, so, like, let's just do it now, Spencer. I'm going to get it out of the way. I want to I hear it. All right, here it is. Last episode, Spencer and I disagreed. I thought the psychiatrist, Doc, as we're now allowed to call her, um, mm-hmm. Was well, not a you, one-time Ted. Char- one time character to move the plot forward in episode one. Spencer thought she would be a recurring character through the season. Spencer, you are a hundred percent correct, sir. I bow at your feet. I am in, I am wrong on this issue. Watch them drop a safe on her next episode, and I'm still wrong. I just we didn't know it yet. You are you so are far at least. Right. We're we're getting we're getting a lot of her. I can already t- I can tell in this episode. You were you were right about that. 
Yes, the, particularly the, how the episode ends between her and Ted, she's going to be a recurring character. They telegraphed, I think, what the arc's going to be in a few ways. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that, though. She arrives on a very fancy transforming bicycle. I haven't actually Dope. seen one of those like collapsible, foldable ones before. Real cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Ted and Keely are very appreciative, but Ted has said he's surprised that she's even there. To which Keeley reveals that Higgins apparently hired her for the rest of the season. This is the first of many moments in this episode. Like, several of where somebody does something that somebody else would really care about and like to be in the loop about and does it without telling them. This happens several times. This show loves to do, let's repeat the same thing or the same experience or the same lesson for several people at the same time. This is one of those. Ted goes off in a bit of a huff, charges over to Higgins and confronts him over this in what ultimately proves to be a very warring with himself kind of manner. He's getting Higgins to apologize, confronting him, you should have done this, and then immediately stepping it back as fast as he possible can. This goes on for a minute to eventually Higgins, at Beard's coaxing, effectively tells Ted to politely fuck off. Ted agrees. I, I think Ted's training Higgins here. Is this, inten- is this an intentional interaction with Higgins, or is this Ted just confused with himself about what emotional reaction he should be having right now? I think it started one way and ended the other. Because right? by the end, he's clearly training Higgins because you got you got Beard actually coaching, like you said, coaching Higgins, saying, like, All right, here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to stand up for yourself, basically. And then Higgins does it, and he gets the big thumbs up from Beard. Well done by Higgins, then. He, re- he didn't read the situation cor- correctly, but he, un- but he followed good advice. Uh, Ted... While he's doing this, comments on the new smell around the locker room, to which Nate literally wheels over to explain. Ted, wait till you hear this shit. Ah, do tell, Ricky Bell. Another <laughs> repeated so thing pissed. in this episode. <laughs> wait he's, till you Nate, hear this shit. Nate just is ready to vent. This has wrecked his day before it even started. Ted responds in a vacuum. With, in mm-hmm. a vacuum, that line, Ted, wait till you hear this shit. About the fact that someone has now used lavender fabric softener is fucking hilarious. He's making mountains out of molehills. Though I will agree with him to a small point that we see several times of where this new Kitman is going off script, particularly the script that Date previously set, seemingly without consulting anyone. Again, repeated theme in the entire episode. That, for a guy at his level, who's meant to be mostly following instructions, could get him in trouble, could be a problem. So I can't necessarily blame Nate for calling him out of, hey, stick to the script. We'll, we'll let you know when you can when you can innovate. But Nate just makes it so monstrous that he's even doing these things that the other coaches seem to like go, hey, this is okay. Maybe we should explore this. I think this is the second time because last episode you also kind of took up for Nate being upset that the kit man left to go to his mom's birthday because you're like, I don't know, he's contractually obligated to do. Like, I think this is the second time where you like you being a hard ass about work, like your work ethic is getting in the way of how you're viewing the episode. Because I think what they're, I think we're supposed to I know to what they're really going think, for. Yeah, you keep taking up for Nate because like you have this like, like real hard ass, like old school Protestant work ethic. But like, I think they're going for Nate's like out of control and like, I mean, what? switching to a, like a lavender fabric softener is totally within the purview of the kit man who's doing the laundry. I can absolutely agree with both these points of view of where Nate can be perfectly, <laughs> perfectly right to be justified in saying, I'd prefer you don't go off script is still just completely off the reservation for how he's reacting to it. If you're not okay, okay with it, you just tell him it's like, Hey, you know, we like, we like, we like and prefer this. We really prefer if you don't change up these things. That's a polite conversation. You need to have like once or twice and then it's done. Nate on the other hand is acting like this guy just punched his mother. 
And that's completely inappropriate. Wait till you hear this shit. Uh, another repeated theme throughout this episode is Ted's line of do tell Ricky Bell. We get several musician references over the course of this episode in various different ways. We Ricky sure Bell do. being Rick yeah. Bell being the first one of a new edition, I believe, R&B pop band. Uh, continuing on. Uh, Jamie is now talking with his agent, who reveals n- that no one wants him. UK or international, international being a little bit iffy, because apparently he, wa- he wasn't even speaking Spanish when he was checking on that, so who could say for sure? Oof. For the reason being that Jamie has now been determined by the broader football world, apparently... He's too much of a liability. He acted like an asshole and left Man City and apparently acted like an asshole and cheated on national television. These make him kryptonite for everyone right now. So yeah, this is an Uncle Lee lesson out here to the celebrities who listen to our podcast. Hey, all you celebrities out there, this is from Uncle Lee. You don't want to be, you don't want to get the label difficult personality. No, no, that's a career Jamie, killer right there. Jamie's got the label difficult personality now. And that like, you can be like real fire one minute, but as soon as you get that difficult personality, it's trouble. Which is unfortunate because he really, he was, season one started, was a difficult personality by definition. He isn't really now. The specific example we have here is him acting out for reasons we find out about later. So it's not, ultimately, I don't think a very fair label for where Jamie has now progressed but it's a reasonable assumption from the evidence provided. Yeah. Uh, instead, soccer, they're trying to direct him now to uh, reality TV, where there's apparently a new reality show interested in him in the Balearic Islands involving him taking nightly three weeks worth of ecstasy. I'd watch that show, whatever the hell that's going to be, but I wouldn't want to be on it. And I think Jamie has the same reaction. I'd like to watch a summary. I don't need I don't need a day by day. Yeah, that'd get a little bit trying maybe after, you know, constant hour a day format. But him just him just like rubbing like corduroy for like four hours. <laughs> Fascinating on paper. As you said, like a recap episode at the end would be a lovely experience. Day to day, maybe too much. He's obviously not wanting to do that. Who could blame him? Uh, and ask whether there's anything else that they could do. You've got to help me. To which... It's a silly way that he expresses saying it, but the agent basically just says, no, there is nothing. You are now a mid-level reality star. That is your career. Jamie's done, do, 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 do. Jamie's done, do, 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 do. Jamie's done, do, do, do. You know, I don't usually like covers. This one I can get behind. Well done, sir. I like this. Thank you. Thank you. I, back in the, uh, back at Richmond, Ted lets himself into Dr. Sharon's office, like literally just knocks and opens the door. Same way he usually does with Rebecca. This is not a good thing to do with Dr. Sharon. She's Ted Lasso, welcome back, and has arrived. With biscuits. Not her biscuits either. They're totally Rebecca's biscuits, as we find out later. In short order, she castigates him for barging in. She could have been in a session. Reveals that she doesn't eat sugar, which, Mm. uh, though she still refers to him giving the biscuits as thoughtful. Ted believes that such people uh, only lived in Santa Monica or in vague horrific dreams and she offers in response that hey you know it's everyone's best interest and uh, she may have had a certain eating problem in the past or at least believes that she did offering the example that she could inhale a cadbury flake bar have you ever seen a flake bar before or is that only in the uk i think it's only in the uk i've never seen it i looked it up it does look very very interesting though like the folded milk chocolate over and over again with a crumbly kind of consistency i I'd definitely try one she, on the other hand, is fully off them because after she'd eat one, she'd talk nonsense for an hour and then pass out. 
sure, everyone responds to chocolate differently, I guess. So here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Ted, there's a recurring joke here that, like, the idea that you don't eat sugar is, like, the craziest thing in the world. I I think only Keely is the character that cuts through this. Do diabetics not exist in the Ted Lasso universe? Like, Ted's never heard. Like, he's from the South. Like, every third person has diabetes. No, no, He's from Kansas. (laughs) He's from Kansas. That's a different world. That's close. That's bumpkin enough. Like, Everything like a lot of people have diabetes. It's it's funny to me that he doesn't immediately like equate it to like his aunt, aunt Helen or something, you know, what? like lost a foot. He doesn't view it in those terms. It's, it's Ted, man. Clearly diabetes exists in the world of the show. In Ted Lasso's personal little hemisphere, totally does not. Or at least the idea of sugar-free foods don't. I think it also is an issue of, and I think he f- explains this in his little video game story he does here next. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say she can't. That's fine. Any Southerner is going to be fine if you say you're diabetic or pre-diabetic for not pushing whatever they're pushing. But if you just say you don't, that's a foreign concept. Because Ted offers about video games. Yeah, I have the same thing about video games. That there's something in my life that I really enjoy and I prevent that preventing myself from enjoying them is making my life better when in reality I'm just depriving myself of something that makes me happy rather than attempting to adjust my relationship with it. So this is obviously Ted throwing a punch at her. Uh, trying to show that he's better at her job than than she is. I, I really felt like that was an aggressive move by Ted for, to this, toward her. This was, and what's interesting, she immediately recognizes it, but doesn't seem put off by it. If anything, I think this is one of the things that helps start the improvement in the relationship over the course of this episode. Mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. she immediately, you know, says this. He's clearly, you know, like trying to reverse, reverse the board on her. She, and then having done this, he sits down now to like, I've just, you know throwing your own shit at you and not me do aggressive Ted sits down and ask what her favorite book is same way hey, like, which favorite book which apparently Ted's is the fountainhead which even he acknowledges is weird I was caught off guard by but sure maybe yeah that is a strange one but he's got a good explanation for it if you'll just hang on a new Tom we, we've got a new story about a jackass and a, and a, and a honeycomb in a brothel <laughs> we'll never find out <laughs> nope <laughs> Dr. Sharon realizing what Ted's doing immediately tries to having kind of put on her back foot throughout this conversation immediately tries to reassert control by now diagnosing what ted's doing with this conversation he's like this i understand this this is your way of connecting with people and she can compliments it makes sense it's very disarming and then stops the conversation and politely escorts him out of the room like i understand what you're doing i even appreciate it but we're done now after she gets approval to watch training. Yeah, she transitions from that to like, can I watch the training? Ted's clearly put off and a little bit confused that she's mm-hmm. still not responding at all to him, his efforts and being friendly. She, he agrees. He's like, sure, of course. She hands him back the biscuits and then closes the door in his face. It's a start to them getting warmer over the course of the episode, her interacting with him, because it was much more polite than some of their previous interactions. But it's still... They're oil and water, but not in a negative way. He is just the most social man on the planet, wants to bond with you immediately. She seems to like to maintain a certain cold reserve, or at least a certain distance with people, or even just dealing with them on her own terms. A certain degree of that wall breaks by the end of the episode, and I think we start to see the fissures here. Keely and Rebecca are discussing how to advertise your wealth status on a dating profile. Do you agree with Keeley's advice that saying rich is okay, filthy rich is impolite? That was my question for you. Is it okay to say I'm, I'm rich on a dating profile? Um, 
you'll get responses due to that factor. I think Maybe it not really, the ones you want. I think it really depends upon the the actual like platform you're using. I would say in pretty much all cases, a woman would not want to say that she's rich. Only because a woman's going to get deluged with like messages anyway. I mean, that's how these online dating services Fair. work. Basically, men make a men make a bunch of profiles and they send out a bajillion messages, and women just sort of like you know pick through the messages that they want to respond to. Cull through the field. Yeah, that's basically it. I think I would I would say if she put that she was rich on her online dating profile, she would never be able to like do it. She would just get five hundred messages a day. That's my guess, Spencer. What do you think? I think she'd get 500 messages a day anyway, but we've already discussed my feelings on her. Yes, you uh, do. hey As for the rich thing, I generally would, I think it's kind of tacky. I, 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 would, I wouldn't necessarily recommend do it, particularly not the filthy rich thing, which apparently Rebecca had to backspace, backspace, backspace on her profile upon Keeley's advice. But I, I personally would, would be uh, kind of put off by it. Maybe what she's saying is implicitly, like, if you're not rich, you need not apply. I don't know. I mean, it gets, maybe it, maybe that's it. Yeah. It, it, I, mean, I think they established previously that her last guy, John, was it? I've already forgotten his name. Um, was Famous? also uh, Wing Wingsley or something like that. Something with Wings Night. Wings Night, <laughs> like like it's Wings Night. Yeah. Down yeah. There we go. Local Chuckle Shack. Uh, I think they established that he, his similar income level was actually a perk in their mind. So it could just be I. This is something that is about me. Similar people apply. Maybe. And I think it was even Keeley even said like um like wealth checks out or something like that. So but yeah, I think that's maybe maybe that maybe that's what they're going for here is that like a checkbox for her on the list is wealth. It is a common trope and it is I think it's even a common sentiment that women don't necessarily like to date people that are worth less than them or make less than them because they feel like it can be an emotional problem particularly for the guy later. So that could even be an issue too. It's a really nice way to say that. <laughs> Uh, while this is happening, um, uh, we see with camera pans over, we see that Higgins is now apparently relocated <laughs> over now to Rebecca's office. Poor Higgins. The man's a nomad all this season so far. He's going, bouncing around, trying to find new places to work without much success, really. He also, apparently at every new place he goes to, he spills his pens because we see that like three times this episode after like three times last episode too. Yep. Recurring things. Show loves it. Uh, they discuss the idea of finding him a temporary office. They debate what the options are, none of which appear to be great due to that one laughing coworker, which I think everybody has that one guy with the annoying uh, laugh, whatever uh, office they're in. We all endure this in the modern world. They uh, Ted now arrives um, and greets... But, again, we're having cheers moments every episode with this. He greets uh, Higgins and his friend, Robert Plant, again... <laughs> Hi, Robert. <laughs> the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. Well done. Higgins responds by introducing him to Jimmy Page, the guitarist of Led Zeppelin. Ted is the most disappointed man in the world that he doesn't actually catch that right away. It has to have it explained to him. He's going to be kicking himself later for that. Can Again, we just say, can we just point out how quick that is from Higgins? I mean, that is oh, like... Yeah. That was that well is done. Like master improv level to hold up a sheet of paper. Hi, my name's Jimmy. Wow. Higgins. Oh, man. Just Good again, work. Adding to the reason that Ted's so disappointed, he wanted to be there in the moment to congratulate Higgins for a brilliant response to Ted's thing. Dang it. Uh, as we said, this, we, get a lot of song, we, get, we, get, we get a lot of musician references over the course of this episode. Uh, Higgins, um, Ted now passes off some biscuits to Rebecca, the same biscuits he tried to give to Dr. Sharon, including the half-bitten one still in the box. Interesting decision there, Ted. Uh, she seems... 
Do you, do you think she seems briefly offended by this? Because it seems she at least seems surprised at this at first that he offered her biscuits to somebody else. Yeah, she does. She has a comment or something. He's like, I tried to give them to Rebecca. And she's like, you did? And then he says, well, or Sharon. And he says, Sharon, Sharon doesn't what? sugar. Yeah. Uh, what a fucking asshole, she calls I, her. So, yeah. Yeah, Rebecca's really, really fired up about this whole thing. I'm right there with him. I understand fully. They then just go to another topic that we discussed last episode. Uh, the subject of therapy. Mm-hmm. Rebecca is apparently on a very similar page to Ted that there's just no point at all that she can self-diagnose herself perfectly that she felt invulnerable so she pushed people away for years leading to her greatest fear being alone and yeah you know, yeah Rebecca self-diagnosing really works out for most people yeah it's <laughs> great yeah you understand yeah, awesome. now, you know, now <laughs> your problem is you don't need any further help big whoop yeah. as they refer to it yeah, why it would was... you pay someone to tell you what a friend could do for free what friends should do for free why do you have friends other than in Rebecca's words, to burden them with your issues and anxieties. I sure. love the writing on this show. How they how they like make a point and then they write it in such a way to show you that they really don't believe the point they're making. Yeah, make the point, turn the burdens and the anxieties, and then Ted just hammers it home. He's like, okay, well, what's going on with you? Nothing. Nothing? Okay, great talk. And they just separate because... <laughs> The show does a great job of introducing an idea, pointing out the problems with it, and concluding on a, uh, concluding on that note. Well done. Uh, it sets up again. Seems like therapy is definitely going to be a key theme of this season. Its values, its importance, what effect it can have on different people, and different views and uh, viewpoints about it. At a coffee shop, Keeley realizes that Jamie has been stalking her. Mm-hmm. She realizes this because she sees him, and he immediately reveals in a remarkably oddest, kind of vulnerable spiel that he's been stalking her for Mm -hmm. at least the entire last lunch hour, trying to build up the courage to say hi, because he couldn't text her because he apparently deleted her number. That one offends her for later. She's not like that. No, not a bit. But he was in town, and he wanted to talk to her about his current situation, because whenever he thinks about talking, he thinks about her. It's really honest and vulnerable and sweet, particularly coming out of Jamie, to which her only response is said to be annoyed about the fact he deleted her number. Uh, yeah, so it is a sweet moment there from from Jamie a little bit. But can we talk about Jamie's appearance? He uh, oh, he's please. clearly lost a little weight. Uh, the actor has from from season to season, and he's done the thing um, where he's got a little like cut, like a, a he's like shaved a little part in yeah. his eyebrow. Mm-hmm. It man, I tell you, not a not a thing you can do to like quickly get on my. I don't think I want to talk to this guy. List. Then yeah. put a little notch in your eyebrow. Oh it, God! It, it's interesting you say that he's lost weight because, but because of that little notch and his very spiky haircut, he looks so much more angular this season from that and the extra extra weight loss. The notch in particular though is just so douchey. It's like you're trying to fake like a scar in your eyebrow or something. Seriously, Doesn't serve like him if, well. If you have a notch in your eyebrow, uh, it's a need not apply for a conversation <laughs> from me. Back on the pitch, uh, the other pitch. Roy's team lost their game. Did you know why apparently it was one of the reasons that they lost the game? Um, is it because uh, one girl tried to do a header? Is that what you're going for? Yes. That apparently they would have they would have done significantly better, but headers are not allowed, which Roy totally should have known, but probably just resisted the idea that nine-year-olds weren't allowed to do them because of fucking brain development. You played a hell of a game, but you lost. I want you to remember this feeling. Burn this into your brains. It's funny he says burn this into your brains when 
he had them doing headers and the reason they can't do headers is because of brain development potential brain injury good call hadn't thought about that i love (laughs) the reactions of this team to roy and his typical angry coaches spiel they're just beaming they are just so happy to be here uh, Roy hands out the consolation trophies, hands out in the sense that he just kind of drops the box on the floor from the rummage in and just kind of stalks off. The teacher grabs him to remind him that, you know, tough love, it works. It's okay. It's even recommended in certain situations, but it only works if they know that you give a shit. So Roy comes back and reveals that he most certainly gives a shit in the most Roy way possible. The, again, his players eat it up. He is their favorite coach. I'm sure they're looking forward to him coming back next season. Hopefully he will. See, the teacher wasn't paying attention because those kids already knew he cared. That's why during his whole spiel, they were laughing. They feel so like close to him. When he cusses, they don't back away from it. They already know that. They already know that Uncle Roy loves them. This seems like one of those moments of where it's the teacher doing this for the sake of their memories when they remember literally what he said later and also doing it for the sake of their parents when they repeat to them what yeah, their that coach be, said. That's a very good point. Give them one good quote to tell their parents. Just something, this, Roy. This is for the sake of the <laughs> script, not their emotions. They're with you. We just need to get the story straight. At home, Roy finds Keeley having a wank to, as it turns out, his retirement video. Oof, duh. I didn't know how we were going to cover this one. Ah, I, I figured I'd just cut right to it, because why not? This is the only bit we ever get to see this thing. We repeat like the same two seconds at two different moments. As Roy having a very vulnerable, emotional moment, and apparently this is Keeley's kink. She's told us this before. I just didn't know how literal she was being. As... Favorite part of this, she's she's doing this thing, this action that I won't I won't talk about. And mm-hmm. Roy stands there, sipping a beer, elbow on the dresser. Hey, what are you doing there? <laughs> I love the dynamic the two of them have. They're such uh, a great so couple. funny. <laughs> she reveals that apparently she has a massive kink for strong men being passionate and vulnerable. Roy, you know, responds that yeah, he's got one for you know couples having sex in the woods. Did you know what the reason was? Because I could never be that free. I love these two. They're so great. <laughs> so honest. It's like the it's most honest an, person. <laughs> it's the most honest relationship ever. They're completely comfortable with each other. Mostly. Keely seems more than a little embarrassed that she that he found out about this, but it's something they clearly roll with by the end of the episode. Yeah, and like the way he the way he like takes it, right? He's pissed for like two seconds. But then he like u- like ultimately like he He's creating a space for her where even something kind of as weird as this, really, she yeah. can tell him. Now, he, he's he's pissed because it's his retirement video. He's not pissed that she revealed this kink. And he's perfectly mm-hmm. okay with it because he loves and cares about her, even if this is weird. And it is. It's it really strange. is. It but is I'm not going to kink shame. Go, you, you enjoy, Keely. Ooh, she transitions. <laughs> she transitions from this conversation to get the hell out of it as fast as possible to push him again to be a pundit so that he can be around the game once more and have that kind of on-the-pitch football player passion that he used to have, but it's clearly kind of disappeared from his life since. She skillfully, artfully, she knows how to manipulate Roy beautifully, compares him to Jamie in this regard. That's a guaranteed way to get Roy to shut up and pay attention. Offers that he's wanting to play for Richmond, and he's lost, just like Roy, but at least he's trying to do something about it. Low below Keeley, but very effective manipulation here. Bravo. 
Keeley says that what he's doing is brave. And while it's true that you can't get hurt if you don't try, if you don't, I've got my phone here and I know how I'm going to spend the rest of my time. Yeah, it's pretty good quotes in here, right? Like um, when when she mentions Jamie, he just goes, I didn't think this conversation could get any worse. Jesus Christ. And then uh, at one point during this, um, Keely's talking and she goes, like he's talking about, you know, saying Jamie. It's not pathetic. It's brave. Oi, I get it. Like she just yells oi at him to get his attention, which also cracked me up. Like there's just little, little, these two actors, like um, very, very good with each other. Because like it seems like. If you kind of go back and watch it, it looks like she's losing Roy in the conversation until she just shakes him with that, oi! Focus here for a second. It's beautiful. I love their banter. They have The actors do old married couple so wonderfully. Oh, that's a good explanation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Great description. They have a perfect understanding of each other and they know what exactly to do to get each other's attention or get them to work off each other. It's beautiful. Yep. Mm-hmm. It works. Roy immediately, well, eventually agrees that he's going to try it once. One time. <laughs> and when it sucks, and it will, he's going to hire a collection of children to follow her around at all times forever, just repeating the phrase, told you so, told you so, told you so. Keely responds that eh, she'd like the attention. And they transition off to a delightful snog. Lovely couple that they are. But Roy, Roy stops, asks, though. He stops, he asks, though. I got the quote. <laughs> what did you tell the Prince Prick of all pricks about coming back to Richmond? The prince prick of all pricks. Beautiful way of putting that. Roy is just such a poet. (laughs) She responds with that he wasn't talking to the... He was talking to the wrong person. Yeah. I love Roy's response to that. Because he shook his head to the idea of, you know, Jamie talking to her and everything else. But when she says that, he just does this kind of sage nod that you do when someone just says that's just... Says the absolute right thing. It's like, yep. Damn straight. They return to kissing. Exit moment. Can we talk about the decorations in Keeley's room? She has a theme. It is a co- it is a theme. Teenage girls like she's got like multiple Lisa Frank trapper keepers like at her her little dresser drawer. She loves pink. She loves fluffy. She loves kind of like repeating like tween styles and customs to a certain degree brought into mo- modern adult life. If I know anything about Keeley, I know that when she has her pin preference, the pin has a feather at the end of it. Absolutely. You this is one of those moments where I just need to give you this sage head nod now because you just did something brilliant. <laughs> well done, yes. sir. Uh, at the pub, Ted is eating dinner, which, could you tell what he was eating? It looked tasty, but I wasn't sure. I thought it was a salad. There's like something a salad in, with a piece of, like a salmon or a piece of chicken on it or something. There's a little raised dish, so I thought there maybe be like a little casserole or something in the middle there, or a shepherd's pie. I couldn't tell for sure. But, he seems to be eating healthy most of the time at this bar. Which is hard to do for pub food, but bravo, yeah, Ted, for trying. As he's eating dinner, very notably alone, which caught me off guard a little bit. The Ted was just kind of there. Uh, Jamie arrives, carrying with him his little army man that Ted Ooh, gave him your at favorite the end of part. Season. I very much like to see the return of what has apparently been named Ted, after Ted Danson, to get it right. They discuss the long, the long and storied careers of certain actors and musicians, including Ted Danson, Julia Louis Dreyfus, and David Grohl, another musician reference here. Uh, question for you. They they go through Ted Danson's uh, basically filmography. You got Cheers, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Good Place, Missed Becker. Becker, also a very good Ted Danson vehicle. Now the question goes to Spencer. Of the available options, Cheers, Decker, Curb, Good Place, what is your favorite Ted Danson vehicle? 
Cheers. I loved him in Cheers. Cheers was a great show, and it also transitioned to one of my absolute favorite shows, Frasier. So, Cheers wins. Okay, there you go. Cheers. What, what, what's yours? Curb. Curb, always Curb. If there's ever... It, curb is on any list anywhere. It beats everything except for Seinfeld in the office for me. So, uh, God I, damn. Yeah, I did not I know lo- this I passion. I absolutely love Curb, curb Your Enthusiasm. And I think Ted Danson's brilliant on it, and he plays that sort of aloof Mr. Hollywood uh, perfectly. Great, great show. I'd ask you what David Grohl's favorite band was, but uh, we don't have the time to go through the 900 list that that man has been with at different times. Nirvana, uh, Avi. You have an obvious favorite? Yeah, Nirvana, obviously. I bet they like Foo Fighters, but Nirvana's awesome, too. Fair enough. Uh, uh, Jamie, after a fashion, because it's Jamie, reveals that uh, his life is kind of all shit right now. Which I, yeah. love, I love Ted's line in response to that, because it's one of the few lines that he says in Ted fashion without a chuckle or a joke. It's, he says, you know, it's a real roller coaster you took me on there. I'm glad I was tall enough to join you on that ride. It's a very serious tone. It's a light line that opens the conversation with Ted Stahl, but I love the tone he keeps with it of, this is not an appropriate moment to do a laugh here. Jamie asks him straight up, can I come back to Richmond? Ted comments that he's burned a lot of bridges there. There. Is he referring to Richmond or in Man City or just kind of in general? I assumed to be at Richmond, but the there caught me a little off guard. I think he's referring to Richmond, and I think the there is intentional because I think he's trying to separate himself from the people who don't like him at Richmond. I think he's trying to say, you've pissed off a lot of other people. Obviously, I'm with you, Jamie. I'm your guy. But I can't, I don't know if I can bring you back because of them. That's the, the impression I got. I think it's a really good interpretation for the scene because Ted never had any problems with Jamie. Well, he did. Not really? But well, he had problems with Jamie, but never ones that were like deal breakers and always ones if we just wanted more to help him and saw where he could help him. Jamie was his guy. He was, he was, well, a few moments we ever saw Ted really pissed was when Rebecca transferred Jamie away without telling him. The moments that Ted was on full tilt when that happened. It is an interesting thing we see developed in this episode of where it makes abject perfect sense that the rest of the team and lots of people on the team hate Jamie and don't want to have to deal with him. Right. But we never really got that moment of hearing them say that in season one. So I briefly found it jarring before just processing events and going, oh, this show is content to have things happen off camera that make perfect sense for their character arcs. This makes perfect sense they'd be in this emotional headspace when it came to Jamie, even if we didn't see them say it season one. As said, uh, well, we, ha- we have that moment of where Ted reveals that, you know, you burned a lot of bridges, but Jamie says, I need Richmond. May walks over and declares that Richmond needs him too. It is mutual feeling before quickly banishing the fan trio at um, Jamie's request and offering them both beers. Even giving Oi, Jamie you three, a wink. fuck off. Oh, yes, fucking off, May. Turn around. She rules this bar with an iron fist. I like that she seems like she has a good rapport with Jamie and clearly likes him. And he clearly is responding well to her, too. Referring to her, I believe, as a tall Yoda. Old people are so wise, they are like tall Yodas. Um, don't don't love the idea that Yoda would be smart or tall. Um, or, uh, I, I, look, here's the thing. Yoda is Yoda. You shouldn't mess with him. However... I do love that it's yet another Star Wars reference. Obviously, the people who like this show are Star Wars geeks like myself, so shout out. Hey, Yoda would be sage whatever height he is. Yeah, he just needs to stay Yoda. I don't, I don't, I don't mess with Yoda. <laughs> don't fuck with the Yoda. Uh, Ted also then cuts to the chase and asks Jamie the very important question of, 
why did you quit Man City to join a reality show? The question yeah. we're all pondering right now. Jamie bluffs for a half second because that's just his style before, again, revealing very honestly, he did it to piss off his dad. And that just immediately, even before he said it, I figured that would be the reason because, yeah, that's the reason Jamie would do that. Absolutely from what we saw at the end of that season, or absolutely from what we ever heard Jamie talking about how he and his dad interacted. Eventually, that was going to come to a breaking point, and it clearly did. Because uh, he was riding him at every available opportunity. He was doing everything possible to make Jamie's life abject hell for his own benefit. And Jamie finally just said, fuck it, enough. I'm done. What can I do to piss him off the most reality TV show that his friends are just going to rag him on? Great. Uh, Ted comments that, you know, I guess trying to just offer Jamie some consolation that, you know, Tough dads can sometimes be what drive people to do great things. Implication, Jamie's done great things. Jamie like Bono, um, I got some examples here of this. I want to know if you have any other pro- big examples of tough father, really overachieving child. Here's the three I, I was able to come up with. Tiger Woods, Michael Jackson, JFK. Mm-hmm. Whew, yeah, those are, those are three really great ones. I was going to mention Tiger Woods and Michael Jackson, but JFK, I forgot about that shit. That man wanted a son to be president. Damn the consequences. Right. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of examples of that. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure I would have gone with Bono. I think Bono's a weird one. <laughs> I, I, I Tiger, even, I, Tiger Woods probably the best best example in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, it's Ted, though. He's never going to say, like, the one you, everybody knows. He's going to be the one that five people in a, in a broader continent know. Because it's Ted. It's how he thinks. Fair point. Uh, Jamie responds to ask Ted about his dad, you know, kind of seeing whether they have common ground in this regard. Ted puts the kibosh on that really quick, though. His dad was not hard on him. His dad was far harder on himself. And Ted's expression and kind of folding a little bit back into himself when he does this makes all the more clear that we're going to need to explore this at a later date and find out what exactly Ted's relationship with his dad was like beyond the the both bittersweet and painful kind of memories we occasionally get out of him. Question for you, Spencer. Mm -hmm. Do you think Ted's dad killed himself? He died, died, died suddenly when Ted was 10. 16. Ted just 16 or whatever it was, young. Uh, Ted's now just like very quickly saying, no, he was hard on himself. And then he wants to get off of that really quickly. Obviously, there's a lot of pain around his dad. That's that's another theory. Theory number two, tinfoil hat lead I, for this episode. I think Ted's dad killed himself. I think that's very possible. I think he clearly is suffering from the loss of his dad and in as many ways interacting with others based on that kind of absence, that absence of a father figure that's struggling with that and is desperately trying to offer people what he clearly was lacking uh, and trying to establish close relationships with people based on that sense of loss. I think any of that can inform a lot of what Ted is. The idea of suicide, though, I haven't really pondered that. That is a deep, dark place that this show is perfectly willing to explore, I think, and do it in a very thought, probably very thoughtful and heartfelt way. So, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely see on that point. Um, Jamie, Jamie's response to finding out that Ted's day was harder on himself than harder on him is immediately considered Ted lucky, which again just informs how unpleasant Jamie's relationship with his dad is. Mm-hmm. But at the end, Ted seems to decide that Jamie rejoining the team would be a bad idea. And it's Jamie's reaction almost seems to suggest that he kind of saw that coming, even if he hoped it would be a different result. While that's happening, though, the fan trio decide to throw a monkey wrench into things and take a picture of the two of them to post on Twitter, which convinced the team right away, without any further evidence, that Ted is rehiring Jamie. 
I feel like it was a dumb, dumb assumption, right? I mean, I, literally all they see is the two of them at a bar and they they all are like, well, this is what that means. Like no one thought to question <laughs> this yeah. assumption. This this seems like the kind of thing of where if it were any other coach, that'd be a fair assumption because the coach wouldn't hang out with a player. But it's fucking Ted. They know Ted. Why would they assume that Ted would do that? But they do. And it leads to some very interesting moments setting up now between Ted and Sam. Because next day on the training pitch, Dr. Sharon is in the stands and things are extra spicy on the field. Some Ted keeps... Training extra spicy today? Yeah, it's got that Nando's peri-peri sauce on. I love peri-peri sauce. It's delicious. Did you uh, see Nate do a spit take with the drink and then yell, is there pineapple in this? Spencer, is this it fi- continues. Is this example finally enough for you to just say Nate is out of control? Uh, sir, I would tell you that a man who just changes the formula on the established drink Good could do Lord. disastrous things. No, obviously he's, he's entirely on tilt. Again. If the guy's changing up things and you don't want him to do so, that's perfectly fine to tell him. That's part of your job. It's not his job to change things, not necessarily about consulting you, particularly if you don't approve of them. You're the boss. That's fine. But Nate's just screaming at people because it's, it's as if that was the only way you knew how to interact with them. That's I not I just feel like they're trying to get more and more absurd examples. Like, yes. this one is even more absurd that he would be mad that, like, there's, like, the pineapple-flavored drink. Like, he is a fuck? Well, we saw again, Nate was very proud of his mixture. He was very proud of the formula that he worked out, particularly when we saw Ted and Beard's reaction to it back in season one. So this is another thing. Again, he's coming back. He's got to put the cape back on, Spencer. If you you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. There you go. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, Ted keeps looking over at Dr. Shannon, convinced that she's getting closer and closer, to which Beard says, (laughs) it's it's an optical illusion driven by his mistrust of her profession. Metaphor. Until Ted looks back over and she's totally moved two rows closer. That was really funny the way they did that. Very funny. Nate said pissed off about the sports drink and refers to both Will and Dr. Sharon as incompetent outsiders. Again, a further example of that Nate is not the lovable Nate that we maybe remember for season one, at least not in this new coaching regard. I don't think I said that, did I? (laughs) Not to me. Not to me to him. Uh, Sam's play is clearly really kind of lackluster for him. And so Ted stops the training to discuss the, the passes that he's making. Sam, in a remarkably out-of-character moment, I say out-of-character not from a writing perspective, but intentionally from the character acting outside the way we've seen him before, snaps at Ted, curses him, and storms right off the pitch, while everyone just kind of stares confused at what the hell just happened of the happy-go-lucky, everybody-loves-Sam throwing an absolute tantrum. Uh, Um, Well, he says, oh, you think you can do better? Come out here and try. And then he says, no, 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 it's fine. Look, I can't do anything out here better than you guys can do unless y'all wanted to play a game of finish that Jimmy Buffett lyric. Then I'd be changing your attitudes and latitudes left and right. This is why I don't even write down the Ted folksisms. I just assume you got that shit covered. You changes love those things. Attitudes, changes in attitudes. Nothing remains quite the same. Every musical reference that they could make, musician reference they could make, we're getting them here. Throwing them in. Uh, Nate reveals that he actually has no idea who Jimmy Buffett is. Shame. Nate. Shame. And we Ted couldn't f- laugh, we would all go insane. <laughs> and Ted follows after Sam to find out what the hell is going on with him. Yeah. He confronts him, who reveals that he is angry and but regrets cussing out Ted. Ted says that, you know, you use them when you don't know the right words to express yourself. I, Roy, and Bernie Mac fundamentally disagree with what Ted just said. Fucking hell. 
Though I will agree that Bernie Mac does use curse words like Van Gogh uses yellow. Well done. I also like when he's like, you got something on your mind? And he goes, no. And he goes, really? Because it seems like you got something on your mind. You know, like something like, I'm angry about a mysterious thing, so I'm going to do some cussing now. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to use that one, boy. <laughs> uh, Ted, Ted's, Ted's, I call it confrontation, but it's conversation that he has with Sam here is delightful. It's a perfect moment between two characters mating on this issue. Because Sam just cannot believe that Ted brought Jamie back to the team. Ted tries to dismiss it as just, you know, nonsense on Twitter because, you know, they freaking created an account for his mustache, apparently. Did you check that? Is there an account for Ted's mustache? I need to know this. There is indeed. It's called at Ted's mustache. Uh, It's a real Twitter account. Got thousands of followers, including followed by the show Ted Lasso and Rebecca Waddingham follows the account. Do you think the show started this or did somebody no. start this and the show co-opted it? They started it, it the, the show referenced it, yeah. Gotcha. So there's been some Twitter sleuthing on that. It was, uh, it was well done. created in season one. Uh, Sam focuses on me on the fact that uh, how much better a place the Rock Room is now that Jamie's gone. Regardless mm-hmm. of the fact they're not winning. Doesn't care about the fact they're not winning. They'll win someday. But it's just, just the fact that Jamie is good, the fact that he can score doesn't mean he deserves to be here. I love that way of phrasing that because it's such a compliment to Ted about how much they value being on this team and being with him. That yep. it is something you have to earn to earn this just bliss that they're in. Even if they're not winning. Even if they're not winning. It's still an absolute great thing that they're in right now. Uh, it's apparent, and one of the driving forces, particularly for Sam, and Ted's really focusing on him like, I, I, I get you, but what's going on with you? Is that... Jamie made Sam feel worse about himself than any other teammate he's ever had. But it's not that Sam's pissed at Jamie. He's right now angry and mad at Ted for not talking about it with the team before making this kind of decision. Again, repeated theme throughout the entire episode. We will return to this one at the end. Ted tells him that they didn't feel like there was anything to discuss because he told Jamie no. Sam immediately transitions back to the Sam we know and love. Feels awkward. Asked everyone, asked ask Ted whether everyone saw him storm off the pitch, which obviously they did. Oh yeah, everybody saw that. Uh, apologizes and Ted encourages him though. I want you to speak your mind. You're a leader on this team. And Sam reveals that his father's actually really happy to see Ted because it reminds him that his son's in safe hands. Heartwarming moment. Means that clearly means a lot to Ted though. Sam is still need to, going to need to run a hell of a lot of laps right now. For the sake of coach authority, that's got to happen. Uh, the dust-up is over. Sam happily goes off to run the laps, overjoyed that he's now going to run them. And Higgins, who's apparently hanging on now, in, now with his new office in the weight room, takes the time to compliment Ted on his very expert job in terms of handling Sam there. He's and spills well his cup. And of course, spills his cup again. They keep returning to that. Roy, meanwhile, is in a very different prep room. The prep room for the television show he's about to, go, about to be going on. He reveals that he likes to leave his eyelashes the fuck alone and discusses his, what he thought, secret love of white orchids. Who doesn't like white orchids? Roy calls Keely and reveals that um, he's actually, honestly, kind of worried about the fact whether everyone might think he's shit. Keely peps him up, but what the fuck have you ever cared about that before? And it's Roy fucking Kent. Absolutely. This seems to reassure Roy a little bit. They say that it's time to get on the show. 
Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols plays again. Callback to first song, first moment of season one. And Roy walks out onto the show. I am the Antichrist. <laughs> he proceeds to act exactly like himself in every way and delivers an abjectly caustic, curse-rich, and unusually honest TV assessment of his old team Chelsea's performance. How would you describe the both fan... Let's do the three of these. How do the other announcers react? How do the fans react? And how does Twitter react to Roy's debut performance? Okay, Chelsea was shit today. They were shocking. Watching them, you'd never know they were playing at home. They were too timid. They were too respectful of United. They were lucky they didn't lose by three, four, or ten. Um, they said it's harsh, and he says, who gives a shit, Chris? That's no excuse to play like you're afraid of him. So getting to your question, um, Keely over the moon because she, she recognizes that the real Roy is coming out. She knows enough about media to know. I mean, she's pushing him because she knows the real Roy will be successful. Like eat she's, it up. She's, she knows this stuff, right? This isn't a guess on Keeley's part. She immediately checks Twitter. Twitter's going crazy. I love the guys at the bar. They oh, yell, yeah. Roy Kent, you fucking legend. I really awesome. like his candor. It, it, they're yeah. great. Everybody's eating this up. The only people that aren't reacting as well is the other hosts who say the wonderful line of, we apologize for almost every word Roy just said. That's yeah, a guy realizing we're this, getting... Right? I called this. I said that I thought he would do well, but he would get suspended by the network a lot. The fines that they're going to have to put in for this man, the insurance policy that they're, they're going to need to secure. It's going to be a little bit problematic. Question about the people that are on there. That guy that it's immediately to Roy's right, is that Richmond's former coach? I think so, yeah. I thought it was too. That kind of recognized him. Yep, yep. Good call. As you said, Twitter's going to an absolute shitstorm over this. This is something you don't get to see on TV much. Everyone loves it. Scene ends. Transition over to a Diamond Dogs meeting, where Ted, apparently having not consulted with Nate, again, repeated theme, is offering Higgins an opportunity to share Nate's office. What would you say Nate's reaction to that is? He's not loving it. Nate not does not loving s- it at all. Seems like it hurts his pride a little bit, which shouldn't be that weird. I mean, Beard, and from Ted's perspective, him and Beard are always sharing an office. Sharing an office room is just part of coaching. I just think Nate, uh, here's my problem with Nate is that like, he's been a manager for 12 seconds and he's got more pride about it than either fucking Ted or Beard do. Yeah, that's fair. But it's an expected reaction, even if it's the one that he needs to start analyzing a little bit. Uh, Ted there now starts to transition the idea of discussing Jamie. Primarily focusing on the realization that Jamie, unlike Sam, does not have a good dad and is in desperate need of one. Why is he talking about this? Because he clear. Well, why is he talking about this? What do you mean? Well, because he convened the Diamond Dogs. Ah, and wants their I opinions. To, I wanted to do that. <laughs> Just how, man? You don't mean to run a transition set up for you. Uh, he goes through all three of them to discuss the idea of well, what their opinion on this is. Higgins returns to what really what Ted and Beard said in, back in season one. It'd be the opportunity to have two aces. It's something we probably really desperately need. Shit, yeah. Uh, Nate says that, yeah, but it also could shatter the morale of the team and that could have its own problems. Beard surprises me here a little bit because I would have thought he'd been more on board with the idea, but he says that pros, great player. Cons, he's pooping a punch bowl. And ultimately gives it a thumbs down. Were you caught off guard a little bit that Beard reacted that way? No. 
No, it, I thought uh, I thought he would say no. Um, he could go either way, right? But it, he really did seem put off with Jamie's actions. Um, he and he never took up for him. He did. But he also seems like a guy that would be very frustrated with the idea of not winning. We saw that season one how frustrated he was with Ted's complacency about wins not matter. It's a fair point. Yeah, he could go either way. Yeah, fair point. Um, so with this kind of vote from the Diamond Dogs. Uh, we moved to what Ted's opinion is going to be, but it is left unsaid. We'll find out later. Keely, on the other hand, is getting an email from Sky Sports expressing their abject love of Roy. Yeah. Though recommending that maybe he should watch his language a little bit in the future. Finds her a thing. Nope. But uh, Roy then returns and does so in intentional silence. Keeping it unsaid long enough for Keeley to believe that he actually did really hate it, despite being amazing. And she starts to sincerely apologize before Roy reveals that, no, you were right. It felt good to be back around the game again and thanks her for helping him again to help himself. To thank her in his words properly, he then offers her a select video of him being emotionally vulnerable and offers a certain series of uh, oral exercises for her enjoyment. <laughs> yep. Wow. That is, this show, that is the dirtiest this show has gotten. I was a little surprised they went quite to that level. Love their relationship. Uh, night falls and Ted and Dr. Sharon bump into each other, clearly unintentionally. She sincerely thanks him for letting her observe the training. Apparently so not a lot of coaches would have allowed that, apparently. Uh, and says that she'll email him with her thoughts when she gets home. Ted... Doesn't want to hear that. Says that he'd prefer not to get the cover tune of her thoughts. Would rather hear it from the original artist right now. She agrees. Says that it's a wonderful atmosphere here. People are thought they're thoughtful and kind employees who actually listen to each other. And says this as if this really catches her off guard to kind of see this in real life. But she and Ted agree, though, that maintaining it if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it philosophy really doesn't apply to their situations because. Eight draws is fundamentally unacceptable and in desperate need of change. It's not Ted, good. It's not good, and it's a problem, particularly given the objective that Ted set forth for the team at the end of last season. They're not going to get promoted if this keeps happening. Yeah, and also, like, I mean, you you have just been demoted from the league above you. You would think that they have more talent than the... You, you would think they'd be a favorite, right? Because they were just previously in the other league, and now they can't even win in this league. I think the loss of Roy is still something they're very much struggling with. That's the biggest season-to-season change from where they ended up. And I, I can understand why that would keep them down a little bit, but it's they're in desperate need for change of some philosophy. She offers the point that heavy is the head that wears the crown, uh, visor and hopes that <laughs> she'll get to talk with Ted someday about the many issues he must be going through. Hint about where this season might be going said right there. She also accepts... That she's okay with being referred to as Doc, having been reassured that Ted in no way means it belittling. It's just the way Ted is and prefers to refer to people. Oh, thank goodness. It's a great nickname. Gotta say it. And reveals also what her favorite book is. Again, showing how much she's maybe not necessarily warming, but opening up a little bit when it comes to Ted. Accepting that what he is is not false in any sense. He's a true person. And it's just friendliness and kindness that he's coming to bear, even if for her, it's a little off-putting, perhaps, or at least a little bit uncomfortable. Do her you know- favorite book is Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. Um, Spencer, this is a hard question because I think everybody has a favorite book in different lanes, right? Like you probably like 
if I were to ask you what your favorite book is, you probably, have a million, you probably have a million different answers. Yeah. But but if you're just asked like generically to name a favorite book, I mean, most everybody has an answer, right? I'll give you mine. Hand up. Mm. Mine, if I'm feeling good that day, if I'm in a good mood, I say Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. If I'm in a bad mood that day, I say Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. There you go. Those are my two hmm. favorites. How about you? What I'll do you offer- say? What do I say? One, I often say, just because it is a book that wherever I am, whenever I see it, I can pick it up on any page of that book and enjoy it, is uh, Shogun by James Clavel. I really enjoyed that book growing up, still enjoy there it now. Go. I like Wonder- it. Wonderful book. I'll offer that one. Uh, did, you, did you look up Prince of Tides, though? Because it feels like this is, let, these, let, let us give you a hint about what the plot of the season is going to be. Here's all I know about Prince of Tides. Is, Please. Um, it, it came across the screen, and it said Prince of Tides. My wife turned to me and said, Oh, that's a Pat Conroy book. I said, I've never heard of it. And she immediately got up and found a copy at our house and said, that's the next book you're reading. So I don't know anything about the plot, but I have been assigned the book. I will be God reading damn. Prince of Tides. Okay. Do you want to put on earmuffs for a second while I say what the no, plot you is? No, go ahead. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. It's 1986, Pat Conroy, one of Beautiful One's classic books. It is about a former football player uh, slash teacher coach who has recently lost his job due to a nervous breakdown, uh, who's dealing with his sister's attempted suicide. Uh, and uh, the psychiatric counseling that she's going through, dealing with a counselor who has a very different background and style than him that causes them to butt heads. They eventually are able to establish a rapport built around helping her. Uh, He's also dealing with the fact of his wife's affair and his and his sister's very traumatic childhood. Uh, Are you done with the the Prince of Tides summary? uh, Pretty much addressed most of it, yes. Uh, Are you you done yet? Because I've been not listening. Okay, yeah, the Prince of Tides summary is done. You can take your earmuffs off now. Okay, I'm back. So, yeah, uh, for those that were actually listening, uh, I would think that that might give us a bit of similarities with the show and maybe some suggestions about where it may go with a few things standing in for other things. Who knows? Sometime later, and Mm -hmm. how how much later do you think this is? Is this the next day and there's just a lot of snow on the ground? I think it's like a week. Okay. Just want to make sure, because it was a big enough, like, physical transition, I felt like, this doesn't just feel like the next morning. Uh, We have Rebecca and her team of 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 Keely and Higgins discussing that Sam is apparently getting a photo shoot, which Rebecca seems, like, legitimately really excited for Sam. Which She likes Sam, yeah. Makes sense from the rapport they established in season one. Yeah, she likes Sam. He's -hmm. he's a nice guy, and they had a good response to each other. Dr. Sharon arrives to meet with him, apparently for the first time, which I found a little bit odd. Uh, and thanks, Rebecca, for the wonderful gift basket of bottled water that she sent. Because, <laughs> as we discussed, Rebecca has no other concept of what you get somebody who doesn't like sugar. Keely, so many other things don't have sugar in them, though. Uh, good point, Keely. It's not neither Ted or Rebecca's wheelhouse. You probably should have handled the gift baskets. The conversation, though, was distracted by the idea of something happening outside on the pitch as tearing up by queen starts to play and jamie walks out to join the team oh boy is that jamie tarts music apparently queen yes it is uh i gotta ask you because they don't say it and the reactions by the players are willfully ambiguous enough that you can't necessarily put a firm hold on what exactly they're indicating with their faces but is the implication here that Ted did not tell the team? No, I think 
that they well there that's the implication yeah there it's a little whoop it's a little twisteroo for you spencer so it's keeping with the theme that we've talked about the theme is is people doing this stuff not telling people and then reaping the consequences of it later i think it may it it, it has led you to believe that ted did not however i think that what we're going to find out and I have a great track record of predicting things on this season, by the way. You do. It's I've been bravo, totally, bravo. totally nailing everything. Uh, I think in episode three, you're going to find out that he actually did. Because that look from Sam was not as angry as I thought you would get if Ted went through with this without actually telling Sam. And had previously told him that Jamie wasn't joining the team. If they did play it out that Ted didn't tell them, I would actually view that as a rare defect in the writing because that would be so remarkably out of character for ted not to have told them it would be his nature to bring them in on this his nature to discuss it with them and particularly given that conversation of sam of course he would have done so so i feel like i agree with you i feel like this is a this is being willfully misleading to convince the audience this is in the same vein to make us all nervous about the kind of tensions the team's going to have but i i too interpret sam's face as less angry or betrayal more just unhappily disappointed so, and I also, that's one of the notes I want to make too, that if it was purely the next day, I could maybe believe it. But I'm with you, this feels like a week later. Probably would just need that coordinate that from a contract standpoint to even get Jamie out that quick. Yeah, that's the thing. You have to have a physical, you have to get your contract signed. Like, there's a number of things. He can't just be on the pitch the next day. We get a few interesting faces. It, Ted yeah. and, Ted and uh, Beard and Nate give the kind of sucking in the breath face to see what the hell's going to happen next. Uh, Sam gives Ted that long, ambiguous look. Keeley does not seem particularly happy, which he's up in the box staring down at this, which is interesting. Rebecca gives Keeley this kind of weird little behind-her-back smirk, which I wasn't not sure what to unpack of that at all. And Ted looks... It's a weird mix of sad, chagrined, maybe even a little bit ashamed. I'm not sure. But everybody's got a, a reaction that we get no explanation for in the episode just ends with us just left to ponder how everyone is going to take this going into episode three i don't know i uh i felt like rebecca the the knowing i thought it was a knowing smile from rebecca obviously rebecca has to know if they're bringing on a new player she has to approve the contract so she was very aware of it um the the look i i saw from keely was more like a all right, all right, babe, sink or swim. Like, it's your time to go. Like, it was kind of like a blank face. Like, let's see how he does. Mm-hmm. In Ted, it seemed like it was a questioning the decision. Is this mm-hmm. right for the team? The sort of mental gymnastics that you know he's going to do after a, a thing like this, right? Because they could reel off five straight wins here or they could completely collapse. I mean, I think everything's on the table with this napalm he just threw back into the field. And I think pitch. it's all... Sorry, pitch. I, 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 I think it's all—it's definitely that. I think it's also an element of he knows the team's not going to respond necessarily well to this, just emotionally. Even if they play well, he cares about them like his children. The fact that this is something that he knows is going to at least temporarily hurt them is a hard thing, even if he views it as a necessary thing. Now, I throw it to you. Do you agree with Ted's decision right now? And if so, why? Yes, I believe. I, I think it's the right decision. You believe? I believe and believe. Uh, here's the thing. And and um, I'm going to call a little bullshit on our boy Beard here. Beard made it perfectly clear to Ted toward uh, this is the end of season one. Mm-hmm. This is not college football. These yeah. are not kids. These are professionals. We're here to win ball games. That is the point. Sometimes you have got to do the right thing for the team. 
and not worry about this sort of like making everybody feel good kumbaya bullshit. And like that is that is the how Ted should be thinking about this choice. Now, there's also the added benefit that I think knowing everything, having perfect information about the situation, it's the right move because Jamie's a much more sympathetic character than everybody else understands. I think if you're from the perspective of Sam, of course it seems like a shit move. But like if you actually can see the whole chessboard, it's the right thing morally to do. But I also think he just has an obligation to get two aces. Two aces, episode six, season one. Shout out. I am absolutely fundamentally there with you. I know it's going to be something that can at least temporarily be hard on the team, and we can't be certain how Jamie's going to react once he's back among them. He might fall into some old unfortunate grooves, even if I don't think he will, or I don't think they'll be long-term. But from the perspective of Ted, I don't see how he even has a choice in the matter, really. That this is perfect for the team. This is a guy that is a very skilled player that right now, in like a money ball situation, is going to be massively discounted. Everybody's thrown him out. He's an all-star potential who has a low dollar value right now because he's been viewed as difficult. You know he isn't. You know you can work with him. His one problem is not there. And he's an excellent player that you desperately need to get out of this rut. I was really surprised by Beard's reaction there and just so quickly poo-pooing and dismissing what seems like a miracle to offer this team right now. Even if it, even if it is risky, even if it could be problematic, even if it's going to ruffle some feathers... They've worked through that shit before. They did it with Jamie here. Yep. They can do it yep. again. All right. Is that the end of the recap? That is the end of the recap, sir. End of the recap. Episode two, season two. Thank you, Spencer. I appreciate it. Bang up job. As always on the recap, covering each and every point. I appreciate that very much. Let's go to train wreck of the episode. I've got my nominee. Are you ready for it? I'm ready to hear it. I think I'll agree. Nate is my train wreck of the episode. I think that's a very solid nominee. Yeah, what do you think? I, I the only the only alternative I would offer just to just due to the events that he goes through, even if he seems like he ends on a positive moment, is Jamie. Yeah, he could be an honorable mention maybe, but he does seem to have a little bit of a redemptive arc, right? Like he's he's becoming a little bit more self aware. Right. He's honest with Ted, and this is also better ultimately for him. Him being back at Richmond, him being able to complete that aspect of his development, him being back under Ted's wing, long-term is a better-off thing for him than just being an all-star at Man City. I don't think he would have ever gotten what he needed there, and I don't think he ever would have been able to get away from his father. So though this has been a difficult couple weeks, presumably, long-term this feels like it'll be better for Jamie, so I think that moves him out of train wreck, even if it will be a difficult road to walk, I'm sure. Nate, on the other hand, has no self-awareness at all what a shitbird he's being right now. Yeah, he's just being a jerk, and like I think on it, they they're focusing on it so much, and they're they're not explaining it to the point that I know it's it's going to culminate in a, in a probably a pretty major plot point. Uh, I'll be curious. Let's, go ahead. Idea to throw out there. I mentioned earlier the idea that Nate may not be responding particularly well to uh, Jamie now that he's now in a coaching position. One of the things that may actually rally the team is them defending Jamie to Nate being unreasonable. If that happens, it could be something that could actually bring the team together. And I could perfectly see that happening given how I expect Nate's going to react to Jamie. And could push the plot uh, for the theory that I threw out, right? It could lead Ted to telling Nate, like, hey, maybe this coaching thing isn't for you. And Nate being like, I'll tell you what I could do well. I could do a better job than that shitbird will. Very possible. Um, Before the end of this season, which do you think will be more likely? Or which do you think... uh, Roy serving as the announcer specifically for a Richmond game or um, Roy serving as a coach for Richmond? 
I think it's more likely that he'll be a coach, but we'll see. We'll find yeah. out. Ready for the Sports Center top 10? I'm ready. 10 and only 10, always 10. 10 on the nose. Things that we liked about the episode. I will start things off. Uh, there, uh, Jamie, after he gets off of like Lusty Lust, Lust Island, or whatever the hell that thing was. Lust called, conquers all. We get to the This Morning Show. It's a real UK show. Um, it is The show is originally presented by husband and wife duo Richard Madeley and Judy Finnegan. I guess Judy didn't change her name, but they were a husband and wife combo. And they mm. did that show for more than a decade after the launch. It's currently presented by the two people that you saw on Ted Lasso. So that was a, a real cameo by the actual main uh, host of the show, Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, which you mentioned before. It's a British daytime show. So it's kind of interesting. It's not necessarily in the morning. It's like a little later in the day. The uh, name is This Morning, you false advertising bastards. And it's on IT. If you want to check it out for all of our fans across the pond, it's on ITV in the United Kingdom and Virgin Media One in the Republic of Ireland. Okay. Uh, top one for me, absolutely. Roy and Keeley's relationship. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful. They're awesome. Their relationship goals for everyone right there. It's a beautiful thing to see played out on television of just two people that so clearly understand each other well and care about each other. They're, I like that this show does not feel the need to draw out relationship drama. They have their issues, they work through them because they care about each other, and they're open and communicative with each other in a way that you almost never see in relationships on TV because most of them seem to view that drama is more exciting than people developing and growing. So that's... Really heartwarming, and I really love to see it. Ted gets in a little, like, um, verbal, like, rut talking about Frank Sinatra. <clears throat> Frank Sinatra was married four times. Here's his four wives. Nancy Barbado. Forget that one. Ava Gardner. Yep. Mia Farrow. Yep. Barbara Marks. Barbara, mm. he was married to when he died. Uh, next one from me, um, Dr. Sharon's bike. One of the problems I always have about bikes is that they take up so much physical space whenever you like, like ride to work or everything else. If I could find one that collapses into a small suitcase form the way that one does, I would happily use that to get around to commute. God, that's such a great call. That is a very cool thing. Um, Ted, See, you don't have to lock it up. You don't need a bike lock. You don't need any stand out front. You don't need to try to carry it in your office. You just fold it down and away you go. Yeah, like a little briefcase. Um, so... This is for my American audience. Uh, Roy mentions Nigella. Nigella said to uh, spatchcock the chicken, make it more juicy before you make chicken cordon bleu. Nigella, Lucy Lawson, apparently is an English food writer and television cook. She's kind of like a, uh, like a, um, Ina Gartine, maybe. Like hmm. we have Ina Gartine over here. It's kind of like that. She is, however, the daughter of Nigel Lawson who was a conservative part of the conservative party. And he was hmm. a chancellor over there. Chancellor of E X C H E Q U E R. No exchequer? idea how to spell Exchequer. Exchequer. Yes. I don't know what it is. Anyway, exchequer. he's a chancellor. He was a chancellor of that. So he's in, in, into politics. Her old I understand. Uh, uh, number five, 10, I lose track for me. The importance of having a good coach or teacher and the effect that has on a kid. Roy, as a coach for those kids, is going to stick with them for years. They're going to have fond memories about that. And it's going to affect their development in all kinds of positive ways for just the rest of their lives to come. And that's the power that having that kind of thing can have. So seeing Roy 
be his caustic usual self, but clearly care and clearly make these kids care and have memorable experience. This is just really great and heartwarming to say. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we're about at 10. So I'm gonna give you the option for the last two. This is the first oh, time here on the podcast. I, I don't know. Do um, this responsibility. I've got Nando's Perry Perry sauce and I've got Freemasons. Oh, we already talked about Perry Perry Freemasons. Give me. Uh, okay. So, uh, Ted is walking, uh, out the same time as doc. We can call her doc. Now she thanks him for letting her watch practice. Says most, most coaches get conspiratorial about it. Ted jokes that he didn't know, uh, he had the chance and that most of his conspiracies revolve around the Freemasons on account of a couple different Disney cartoons. So there are, uh, some thought, well, first off, let's talk about what the Freemasons are. Freemasons are masonry Mm -hmm. consists of a fraternal organizations that trace their origins to the local guilds or stonemasons that from the end of the 13th century regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interaction with authority and clients. Freemasonry has been the subject of numerous, numerous conspiracy theories throughout the years. Uh, one of which is that Walt Disney himself was a Freemason and that he put a lot of little hints here and there um, among all his anti-Semitism uh, into Disney cartoons and Freemasonry. Oversold. Oversold. Uh, probably. Well, he, he, well, whatever. He was, uh, he was an anti-Semite. But um, I think that the the little hints here and there of Freemasonry and the cartoons are, are probably oversold as well. Because uh, the examples I could find to seem to me seemed pretty benign. I do want to talk about the last thing. There are two types of uh, Masons. So if you come across somebody who says they're a Mason, um, first off, don't talk to them because they're kind of jerk, <laughs> kind of jerks. I went to, I went to grad school with a guy named Michael who was a, who was a Mason. Michael, if you're listening, you're a real asshole. He was always a jerk and he loved to tell everybody he was a Mason, but there are two types of Masons, regular Freemasonry, which insists that any working lodge have a volume of open scripture. They believe in a supreme being and no woman be admitted. Or mm-hmm. we have continental Freemasonry, which is basically like, I don't know, like the, the, you know, those churches that like have like a name, like the new church of God and life. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. continental Freemasonry. Basically. The non, they just the non, say, yeah, we'll remove all this crap. The, the non-denominational Christian church kind of thing. Yes. Fully understand. That's continental Freemasonry. Anyway, that wraps up sports center top 10. You and BJ just are just going with a knife through all our, all our potential demographics. He's eliminating countries. You're eliminating entire fraternal groups. What is our listening base going to be after you two are done? I'm sure there are some nice Masons, but the one that I, the ones that I've met just couldn't wait to tell you that they're a Mason. Uh, and, that, and, and that's they're supposed to be secret, right? That is part of it, but they have a total public lodge kind of thing. So it's always been kind of like that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The secret's part of the fun kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, it seems to me like one of those things that probably had a lot of clout back in the day. And now it's just kind of a, like almost like like VFWs, how VFWs kind of aren't that important anymore. The reason I also said the whole oversold about Disney thing is that it feels like it's one of those things of where it's such common knowledge that friggin' Family Guy jokes about it right and left. But reading into it and unpacking it, a lot of the guys, that, a lot of people around him said that no more than the standards of the time and really not that much. But it's a really contentious issue that people like to debate. Yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, like George Washington had slaves, but everybody had slaves back then. So, uh, how how much do you judge people based on present values, or do you judge people based on their era, or do you kind of do one and acknowledge the other? A, a, philosoph- a philosophical issue we're debating constantly. Very difficult stuff, very heady stuff, and that's a good segue into our last segment, which is Ted's life lessons. Uh, here you go. You ready for him, Spencer? Very much so. Um. 
I only got three this year. Here? Or this 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 week. Sorry, three this week. Uh one, not everyone has a great dad. Yeah. Remember that in your interactions with people. Like yeah. if you have a great dad, remember that not everybody does, and that could affect them in a whole plethora of different ways across the board. Um, for the, I mean, you could extrapolate that to not everybody had a great childhood. Not everybody had great parents, right? So remember that when you're interacting with people. Mm-hmm. Um, two, uh, never give up applies to humans too. That's almost a direct quote from Ted. Uh, I really like that one. Uh, always, always trying to give people second chances. If at all, it's possible. I think that's always something we should look toward. And the final one, here you go. Listen to your loved ones when they give you a suggestion. If you trust somebody and you love them and you really care about them, I say give their suggestions a lot of weight because often mm. they know you at least as well as you know yourself, possibly better. Yeah, And that's and they, exactly what happened with Keely and Roy here. And they have the outside perspective to maybe even be more honest with you than you can be with yourself on the issue. So maybe give their suggestions a try. You, if you have a loved one who's badgering you to try something, eh, maybe take a Saturday afternoon and do it. I find it fascinating that though you much you love and adore the silly, funny aspect of the show, you so perfectly hone in on the sage dramatic wisdom that I love about the show. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, that's probably my favorite part. Like um, this episode when uh, Ted shifted the conversation and said, yeah, uh, Sam convinced me to bring Jamie back or, or he changed the conversation. Like what? Sam wants to bring Jamie back? And he goes, no. no but he no. reminded me that he has a good dad and that not everybody does. And when he hit that line, I at first got misty and two yeah. wanted to give the show a round of applause. Cause that, that boop, that, that hit into something serious is what I really, really love about the show. I mean, I love the absurd too, but that man, that elevates it to another level. I'm absolutely there with you. The fact that it can be both momentous while also funny and silly is just quality television. You rarely see. And I'm left to ask a question. Cause you said you liked this episode more than last and you rated the first one, one of your top three of the show. Does this also rate into the top three? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Um, because uh, for me, it's doing the same stuff that I think the show is really good at, right? Advancing the plot, building out characters. Those moments, like I just talked about, where you're like, wow, they hit into something really serious here that you can, that, that hits you emotionally. But the reason I'm rating these so high is because my probably my 1B favorite thing about the show is the absurd pop culture references and silliness. And they are jamming so <laughs> oh, much God, of that into heavy. these episodes. These episodes are like so condensed and heavy with the pop culture references and the dumb asides and the jokes that are callbacks from four episodes ago. That type of stuff is like 1B for me with the show of why I like it. So this, they, they for at least the first two episodes, they're giving us a lot of it. And I go back to my theory, which I debuted on a previous episode. I just think that uh, they have more writers in the writer's room now. I mean, that the jokes per line is just, it's denser, you know, because I think they got more comedy writers. Do you, do you think they have, a, they have a dedicated pop culture writer that just like put, put together as many musicians as you can? We need eight people as fast as possible. And just that, that's their job now on the show. Probably <laughs> a couple interns, right? <laughs> that you're like, hey, come on, 80s rockers, go. Find objects that somebody can have on them and compare them to rockers fast as possible. What about you? Like, where do you like? I'm not asking you to necessarily rank it numerically as far as your favorite, but like, is it top half, top quarter? This was definitely top half, maybe even going into top quarter. I liked this episode quite a bit. I think it was a big step up from the last from the first episode. And one theory I was pondering is that there was a while of where the show was saying that they were going to release two episodes at the same time. That was a public statement that they did. 
And I almost wonder whether that was the plan and they wrote these two to be a purposeful pairing together. Because I think these two combined work a lot better than episode one did by itself. Maybe. Maybe. That's a, that's a good idea. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but it certainly did seem to get the car back on the tracks a little bit more for a lot of people. Uh, just in a quick review of Chatter Online, people liked episode one, but people really liked episode two. Uh, this, one, this one was met with a lot of positive reviews. Not surprising. It sets up what's going to be a fascinating episode three. Cause we're back in the dynamic. We're back in the team trying to work with Jamie. We're back in them trying to find their footing. Except this time they need to not just survive, they need to win if they're going to accomplish their objective. Absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this episode up? It's such a delight talking about good television with you that we both enjoy. It's, we don't we'd always get that on the show with you and I having very diverse opinions. It really is a good time, Spencer. I really enjoy doing these episodes with you. I enjoy Ted Lasso, and we are going to be here with you every single week. These episodes uh, debut uh, Ted Lasso on Apple Plus on Friday, and we're here with you. Very next day, Podcast Professionals on Saturday for a pod for you. We're going to be doing that all through season two. Thank you very much for listening. If you're enjoying our stuff, please go to mangumtalk.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us. We have a form you can fill out. We want to hear anything from our audience, what you like, don't like ideas for segments segments that we can scrap any of that stuff we like it all i will get it i will filter it i will feed it back to spencer so that he thinks we have nothing but positive comments that is what we do here what on the lasso lowtown uh, if you like our pods if you like hearing listen us gab and if you've gotten this far in the podcast you probably do go to your favorite podcast platform type in mangum talks we have tons and tons and tons of material that you can check out across a variety of different podcasts so thank you very much for joining us we will be back with you next week for season two episode three. Thank you very much.